What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Flamethrowers. Jessica Luther here. As we announced on Tuesday, we're now releasing our interviews as separate standalone episodes, which will drop on Thursdays. We asked our patrons for feedback, and y'all told us you wanted shorter episodes, but we didn't want to sacrifice time with our guests. We also hope this change will give us more room to go deeper in our interviews. This week, we're including two interviews back-to-back. Both are about disability, COVID-19, and sports. Here's the first. Okay, first... Uh, tell me who you are and what you do. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm Kristen Duquette. I don't know where to begin because I feel like I have lived about five different lives at this point. Kristen Duquette is a former Team USA swimmer for the Paralympic League. She's a former Obama appointee who now works in the federal government. She's also a student at the Naval Postgraduate School for Homeland Defense and Security. And definitely a disability rights advocate uh, nationwide and internationally also. Well, that does sound like five lifetimes worth of things. <laughs> it's very impressive. Can we start by talking, if you feel comfortable with this, can you tell us a little bit about your disability and what it means to have a progressive disability and the impact of that on your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up non-disabled, meaning I, I didn't show any symptoms of any kind of disability at all. And at the time when I was a kid, I was doing about six different sports. I wanted to, oh, wow. yeah, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer. I wanted to be Natalie Coughlin. Coughlin's got the Look lead, but Madero's and Bootsma chasing, and it's going to be Natalie Coughlin. And I love backstroke. What started to happen was I couldn't keep up with my friends. I remember at a swim meet, doing a flip turn at the wall, and when I flipped, I looked on either side in the middle of the flip turn, and I, I couldn't see anyone around me. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm totally killing it here. And I think I was, what, like seven or eight. I'm a very competitive person that hasn't changed, but I touched the wall, and I seen no one else's in the pool because I was that slow, and everyone was clapping. And... um. My shoulder blades are starting to stick out. Uh, it's called scapular winging. And I was starting to trip over my feet. And I remember when I was about seven, eight, nine, just being like, Kristen, why can't you do this? Like, just run a little faster or just like kick a little harder. What is going on? I got a genetic test and a bunch of tests when I was eight. And on the week of my ninth birthday, I was diagnosed with fasciocapular humeral dystrophy, which is a specific kind of muscular dystrophy. It's genetic. It's non-life-threatening for the majority of people. Growing up was not fun. I definitely went through my phases of depression and struggling of trying to fit in, uh, just like all kids growing up. But... The more I was growing up, 
also different aspects of my body were just degrading at the same time. So while I was maturing intellectually and socially, physical parts of my body were going in the opposite direction. What did this mean for your sports career? I wasn't aware of disabled sports. I wasn't aware of Paralympics or anything like that. I just quit all sports. And I took up music. I just threw myself into academics. I used to be a manager of different sports teams and I despised it. I just, I wanted to also be out on the field. It was only when I was in high school was I, I retaught myself how to swim. I wanted to do something on my own body's merit and I wanted to be with my friends. Can you tell me what it, what do you mean when you say you taught, retaught yourself how to swim? Like, what did that look like? How do you explain that's that a great to someone question. who is able-bodied and hasn't yeah. had to relearn a skill like that. Yeah, I mean, I essentially, I took six years off and I remember sitting down and being like, okay, I mentally remember how to do it. Regardless if you are in a different phase of a body, you mentally still remember how to do it. Like, I still remember how to run, even though my legs could not do that, but Um, Mm. You can imagine that, right? So it's a lot of different visualization with memory. And I was just like, all right, let's just see what we can do. And I remember looking up different YouTube videos of technique of like Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Aaron Pearsall, just like very high stake races that I would actually take to the pole and for 10, it was like the final countdown, but it was really with like a senior citizen swimming next to me and they didn't know that it was the final countdown. But so I used like a lot of imagination, but just getting back into the water was so beautiful in the sense that I had no one around. I just fell in love with something all over again that gave me so much freedom and joy in a world that I really didn't feel like I belonged in a lot of senses. And also I was getting that endorphin high and the chemical releases that I hadn't had in years. But the end goal was to be on my high school swim team and I knew that no one else was disabled at all. So I said to myself, and I don't know where this came from, (laughs) but I said, if I could swim 600 laps And the pole was maybe like 10, 11 yards. It wasn't a 25 meter or anything like that. I said, if I could swim 600 laps in that pole in one day, I can at least show this high school coach that I love the water. I'm not going to be making points, but hopefully I can add something to the team. And so I made a journal. I like did a bunch of workouts and I, I logged it all. And I eventually did that goal a year later and I emailed her and, and she was like, I have no clue who you are. I can't, I can't imagine now, like I was 15, I think. Yeah, I was 15 of like getting an email from a 15 year old of like, look, I did this and then I, I like swam this, but I can't make points to your team. Like, can I be on your team? And she said, I don't know who you are, but you definitely show determination and a passion for this. I would love if you were on our team that you also trained for the Paralympics. And so that's how I actually learned about the Paralympics and started. Oh, that's so interesting. And so you hadn't seen growing up, 
you hadn't seen disabled athletes. No. So actually a, a funny story that I like to say is when I, I wasn't competing and I wasn't swimming. So I think it was about 13 at the time. I remember watching the 2004 Olympic Games and just like watching all the races that were happening in Greece. And I remember thinking like, my God, if I had another shot of swimming and racing, I would just like, God, I would give it my all. And six years later in 2010, I competed at that same venue as the captain of Team USA. You have set, this is, am I correct on this? You have set American Paralympic records? American records, yes. Yeah, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to set a record like that? It's pretty cool. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And so in the middle of all of this, you go to college because we're talking about your college years. You go to Wheaton. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the story of trying to swim while you're at Wheaton? Yeah. I went up with a swim coach beforehand. You know, I was 18, 17, 18. He was like, I've trained with other Paralympic swimmers back in my career. Like, yeah, this is awesome. And so I went there. And just being a disabled person in general, you have to be your advocate at all times. And I was growing into speaking up for myself in those ways because growing up, I felt so much shame for looking and operating so differently than everyone else around me. And I had a comment one time from the coach of like, oh, you said you need help doing XYZ. Like, does your mom help you put your competition suit on too? Things like that. And I I didn't know how to respond. I didn't even understand the context. And I really didn't feel included at all. Uh, some of the swimmers were nice, but I definitely was not included. And I I was told multiple times that I was too intense on a dream and something that I really wanted What eventually happened was I was actually at a training in San Diego, California with one of the Team USA coaches, and I got an email in August from the coach of all the reasons why I should no longer be on the swim team, and they were going to have tryouts this year, and I could try out, but it was very likely I wouldn't make it. And I could still swim at the pool if I wanted to, but the chances of me being actually in the swim team now were not going to happen. And it was a eight bullet points. And some of them were, will you take away from your teammates' concentration before their events because you ask for help to get out of the pool? Obviously, because these pools don't have ADA compliance of lifts so I do have to get pulled out and I physically can't pull myself out of a pool it related a lot to asking for help in a lot of things that I legitimately needed help with and again I felt a ton of shame I felt like I was a burden and I hated it and I didn't know where else to go and I I transferred to Trinity because it was close to home and I did that within two weeks of the semester of my sophomore year and I filed a complaint with the Department of Education of that instance at Wheaton College with the swim coach. That was with the Office of Civil Rights? Yes. What happened with it? You know, I think maybe about a year or two later I got a notice, uh, like a letter, but 
I don't think anything really came of it. I know、mm. a lot of people said, you know, Kirsten, you should sue the school. I quite frankly just didn't have it in me. I just felt so much shame. I didn't want to rehash so much of that. And so you had the goal of going to the 2012 Paralympics in London. When did you find out that that was not going to happen?、Uh, the 2012、uh, US Paralympic trials were in North Dakota. I remember, so I'm a backstroker, and I remember since I was in a lower class, less events were going to be available. In the London Games.、Yeah. So it, it was for an event that was not my event. And I, I did the 50 free. I saw my times. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I, I knew that. But what they did is after the swim meet, they ask you to go into a room and they announce the team. And I knew I didn't make it. But I still went because a lot of my friends I knew were going to make it. And I will never forget such a conflicting moment of feeling like my heart was like swept on the floor and stomped on at the same time of feeling really happy、uh, for my friends that are crying because they made a dream that they wanted while my dream was just crushed. It did take a while to. Not feel depressed and to know that there is so much else to do outside of competing and swimming. And after London 2012, I remember talking with my college advisor on what my thesis would be. And we wanted to tie in so much of my personal experience, and I thought about and eventually wrote. Whether disability rights are viewed as human rights in a UN context of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, specifically Article 30.5, which is the right to sport. Yeah, and you went to the UN, correct, in 2016 to talk about this. Can you give us what is like your elevator pitch for your argument? Like, what were you arguing in your thesis? Wow, I'm really put on the spot. Um, uh... Oh, you... That's fine. We could like. No, I'll, I'll try. I mean, I put enough work into it, and it was a very expensive education, so I might as well put something <laughs> off of it.、Um, essentially, the argument is that it's valid and it needs to happen, but the disability community on an international level, it's the biggest minority population in the world. It's drastically underrepresented. And the majority of a lot of governments are still very much focusing on basic human rights for people that are disabled because it's needed. But at the same time, I want to push it, as my coaches in the past have said, I am a pit bull. I want to push it to all the other levels of、uh, recreation, of sport. Of media, of sexual reproductive rights, of politics. And it's going to take all of us. It's not those that are just disabled to do that. A good friend of mine is an organizer, and she always says that hope is a discipline. Oh. You got you to work at that, you know? Yeah. So that's not just something you can hold all the time.、Um, is access to sport a human right? 
I would categorize store as culture, and access to culture is a human right. I would constitute that obviously as a secondary human right compared to food, water, shelter, and I would a hundred percent see it more as also an access. Because non-disabled people have access to that, and so we need equal access. So the pandemic has been affecting all kinds of athletes, right, from amateur to professional, and we've seen that. But in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected? Yeah, the one thing that we we do have going for ourselves is the ability to adapt. We're always adapting to different situations. We're always adapting to getting more injuries or more susceptible to physical things that come in our way. Um, and obviously systems too. So I think the biggest thing is we're already creative. We have a leg up in that sense. I also think at the same time, depending on the disability itself, there's only kind of a window for a lot of disabilities that you really peak. And a lot of that is contingent on time and where you are in your body to like max it out. But also, you know, on top of that, a lot of disabled athletes are also immunocompromised. If I was immunocompromised and also a Paralympic uh, swimmer still training, would I run the risk of using the pole I would always use? There's a lot of elements that aren't working in your favor when you're already physically compromised in some way. I have a couple more questions. Is Go for it. Okay? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm in quarantine. Um, so- I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> um, so I know that disabled athletes and access to sport, this is a huge topic, but are there two or three maybe basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Or I guess like if you were in charge of the world, Kristen, like what would be the first thing that, that you would change around yeah. disabled sports? Oh gosh, I would, uh, <laughs> do people want <laughs> me to have that power? Um, I would increase the ability for disabled athletes to have collegiate scholarships And I, quite frankly, I would rework the NCAA system to also include disabled athletes because that actually never thought about the fact that it doesn't. It doesn't unless you have a particular type of disability that you are still able to contribute within the NCAA point system. So I would love if it was integrated. That can be a bit controversial of able-bodied and disabled athletes uh, competing on the same teams. There's a lot of discussion on that, or would you just have disabled teams compete against each other? But we need to integrate that. We also need to have the same amount of coverage for the Paralympics as the Olympics. They need more scholarships. They need more sponsorships. Disabled athletes also need the same amount of care and attention when it comes to mental health too. So here's my fun COVID question. What are you doing to pass the time these days? Like, have you picked up a hobby? Are you binge watching anything? Oh gosh. Um, I've really gotten into painting my nails because uh, I would usually hmm. never do that because okay. I wouldn't have the time. Definitely. Uh, oh, 
this is what I've been doing. I have gone down rabbit holes on TikTok of skincare and free Britney movement. And I am definitely pro Britney movement. That's great. That's great. I love her. Her Instagram is a thing of beauty. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, Kristen. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. You can follow Kristen on Instagram at Kristen two underscores Duquette, D-U-Q-U-E-T-T-E, and on Twitter at Kristen Duquette, all one word. And now let's turn to our second guest. My name is Lacey Henderson. I am a Paralympian. I do long jump professionally for U.S. Paralympics. Um, I, I dabble in the 100 meters as well, and I lost my leg above the knee to childhood cancer. I had a cancer called synovial sarcoma, and then kind of was an athlete with a prosthetic leg growing up. I cheered competitively in high school and then I cheered in college and I kind of like in a weird roundabout way found track and field um, as I was finishing my undergrad. So it's been a great way to kind of use your disability to get a job and pay the bills. (laughs) Well, you take me, I'd like to talk about your first race. Could you tell me about that? Um... (laughs) I'll tell the embarrassing, like when I'm, okay. when I have Thank time, you. I tell like the glory story, but this, it was not, it was the opposite of that actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so tell me the non-glory story. I had basically started pole vaulting. My dad went to Olympic trials for pole vault. He and I like are overly competitive and we'll just talk trash. Like that's my actual true talent is trash talking. And so one day we were just like talking about who was a better athlete and somehow he was like, Lacey, you couldn't pole vault two feet. He's like, you're not fast enough, you're not strong enough, you just wouldn't be able to do it. At 21, like, you can't tell me nothing, okay? I know it all. And um, only my, like, family that comes from a pole vault background would be able to have a pole vault pit and poles just, like, ready, like, just, like, on (laughs) demand. So the next day I jumped, I jumped six feet. But, like, basically, I really got into the feeling. Like, I knew that my cheer career was going to end, and I just wanted to still feel like I could do flips and, like, fly, and so I got a running leg. I started competing just like an indoor kind of all comer track meets. And I got asked to do my first 100 meter race. And um, so I'm from Denver. And my dad is like a, tra- like a well-known track name for at least a while. Probably not now. Yeah, the time keeps going. But uh, we're lined up at the line. And I know the announcers from cheerleading. I used to judge cheer competitions as well. And so they were just like trolling the hell out of me. And they were like, Lacey Henderson, like daughter of legend tj henderson like all-star cheerleader blah blah and of course like again me 21 i'm like yes like that's me like i'm the best (laughs) so we line up it's a unified race so they have like all ages um different levels of disability and the person i'm lined up to is this like younger boy and he i'm a right leg amputee he's a left leg amputee we get set the gun goes off and our prosthetic our blades clip each other and so I like I go down immediately to the ground and I just remember like laying face planted on the track for a second I was like man they really had to do that whole introduction and I hear like one of the coaches who's who's coincidentally I'm a congenital amputee I just hear him be like Lacey get up get up Lacey get up you have to finish get up so I get up I finish the race but they actually let me come back the following day and um, I'm able to race again and then I qualify for London. So the second part of the story is usually what I tell people when I want to be impressive, but that's, <laughs> that's actually what happened. 
Wow, that's amazing. Um, so you have been to the Paralympics. You went to Rio in mm-hmm. 2016. You competed in the 100-meter dash and then the long jump where you placed eighth, which is yeah. fantastic. Uh, so tell me when you started thinking about the 2020 Tokyo Games. Um, well, first of all, that was very nice of you to say I finished eighth, which is fantastic. So it was it's so funny. It is fantastic. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I made finals, which is crazy because, like, I think, like, when you get to a certain level and just athletes in general, you're always so hard on yourself. You're like, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. But it is, it's true. I made finals. Like, it was not the best meet of my life. But I did make finals. People did not make finals. I have to remind myself. Thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder. You're so, welcome. Um, I, I, so I wasn't satisfied, clearly, with my Rio performance. And I was like, all right, we'll get him next time. So that was pretty much, like, a plan of the seed. I knew I was scratching the surface of, like, of my skill set. And so I was like, all right, if we do another four years, like, it's going to be popping off. Okay, so then when did it start to enter your mind that they may postpone the 2020 games? I think, like, maybe January, February, my mom started being like, oh, this COVID's really bad. And I still was traveling for work. I was still traveling for training. And, um... I was living in Austin. I moved to Denver because I was having issues with facilities. In Denver, I have a little bit better resources. We were going to finish the year with the home team and um, maybe finish the career in Denver where it all started. It was going to be very, like, a beautiful metaphor. And I start going to my tracks, and they're locked up, but not, like, normal one padlock, like, triple padlocked up. And, um, you know, you're like, well, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to, to be able to find a sandpit if I can't get to a track. But I was used to just, like, getting kicked out of facility. Like, for being a track athlete at the professional level, honestly, we get no love except for Olympic years. And even then, they're like, get off the track. You're not supposed to be hmm. here. Because you're, like, of... using – is it, like, because you're using high school and college facilities? Yeah. So, it, like, in, why? like, if you're an alumni of your school, it's usually a lot easier. But I went uh, – ah. like, conveniently, I went to a school where they don't have a track team. Okay. But, I, like, and I have facility like, I have access to facilities here. So, probably, like, late February, there starts being a little bit more, like, inconsistencies with tracks being available. And then, I would say, like, mid-March, it starts, like, dawning on you that you're, like, there is no way that they can do this. There's no way they can do this. And USA, if I may be frank, I, like, okay, let me just preface this by, preface this by saying I have been lucky enough to be an athlete for my adult life. So I don't really know like a lot about business. I don't know a lot about budgets. But with that being said, USA was definitely like on team make this happen. So um, we had a couple of calls from with USOPC for a few kind of like emergency type situations because there was athletes on these calls at like like swimmers and water polo athletes were like, oh, I'm going into the ocean to try to train or like, oh, I'm going into lakes to try to train because I can't get to the pool. And like I have international competitors and I have like really strong competitors from Italy and Spain and they were locked in their houses. And it just seemed, I remember at one point I said on a call, I was like, this seems like the opposite of integrity. And the idea of sports is so beautiful and wonderful and harmonic, but the business side of sport is like, oh, we spent a lot of money on this, so we need to find, do everything we can to make this work. So a lot of people were like kind of freaking out. Track meets for us were just like dropping left and right, and you have to qualify in order to go to trials, and then trials, you have to qualify for the team for Tokyo. Everything was postponed for a while, postponed, postponed, and then when Tokyo got postponed, it was like, all right, we're going to just redo this year next year. Can you tell me what that's like? I, I'm an anxious person 
maybe this is too basic a question, but like, how did you manage that? Like, how did you feel? Um, first of all, let me say I have a fantastic sports psychologist. He was good. I was texting him a lot <laughs> before that, and we had a couple of FaceTime calls. And honestly, when they announced it officially, I felt relief. It was becoming too, so stressful to just like try to fight to find a track that's open, try to fight to find gyms that were open, which they were all closed. It was like, this is real. They finally made the decision and, you know, you can regroup and kind of reprogram for the upcoming year. So you felt relief. I'm wondering if there was anything you did that you normally wouldn't have done because you were training. Like, did you go like eat a bunch of ice cream or? Um, I like wine. I'll say that. (laughs) I'm a gal that likes a nice glass of wine. Not really. I mean, I didn't like, you know, you see jokes about like people like, you know, day drinking at 11 a.m., which I do think is funny. But like, I still I still tried to maintain some type of routine. Like that was one thing that I've learned a long time ago with track is that having something that resembles a routine kind of helps your brain like not just feel like it's in complete desperation, which like some days it worked and some days it didn't. And that's okay. I kind of, like, I tried to do things that I didn't, that I don't normally do. So, like, I was doing, like, little video yoga classes and, like, trying to run distance around the blocks of my neighborhood. And, like, I'm not cut out for that. I learned pretty quickly. But the yoga videos were were pretty fun. Like, I just really tried to, like, kind of do things that were relaxing and not track-specific. So what does training look like for you right now, then? Is it running around your neighborhood? How are you getting ready at this point? the plan is basically now is I was doing some light training, still on the track. I'm, I'm really maximizing my equipment, which needed, God, it needed help. So my prosthetic is, like, nice now. Like, I did not have it set up, so it's getting real nice for 2020, which is great. Um, Can you tell me what that means to maximize your prosthetic? So, yeah, so Paris is so funny. Um, there's, like, rules and regulations. I get asked this a lot. There's rules and regulations mostly for the bilateral amputees. But for the unilateral amputees, like, you'll start seeing, like, trends, basically, of the alignment on a lot of the prosthetics. So, like, a lot of the time, the foot looks really far behind. So, your weight line from, like, your hip down to your toe is almost, like, at a triple extension angle. Like, basically, when Mm. your foot is hitting the ground, like, you're almost, like, in a terminal stance type phase. So, it was really just, like, getting the alignment down. Um, I was on, like, running blades that were way too stiff, so I wasn't getting good compression last year. We actually had issues with shipping because most of my feet come from Austria. Um, So I had some old ones that were just way too stiff. So thank goodness my prosthetist, that's the term for that clinical profession. But my prosthetist is very smart. He's really good at physics. So we just shaved off the sides and we were able to get the compression that we needed for now. We've we've definitely learned to be resourceful in an unprecedented time. But uh, we'll start preseason training, which is like heavy volume stuff in October and and go through. Before we talk like big picture stuff around disabled athletes. I wanted to ask, did the postponement affect any other parts of your life? Like I'm, I assume you had post Paralympic plans. Yeah, have, for sure. Have any of those <laughs> been put on hold or what are you doing about that part of your life? It's been on hold and it's changed, which I think is a good thing. Um, I had a lot of speaking events lined up this year. So like also my bank mm-hmm. account was like, sure. Yep. Yeah. A little bit more frowny faces, but you know, like, I'll do a Zoom, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, my plan was retiring after Tokyo mm. and I was ready to like kind of pick up stuff for my own podcast and kind of pick up stuff like for my career outside of sport. And um, 
actually, I was really just burning out, like, 2018, 2019, I was training by myself, I was having all these leg problems, and I was just, like, I just, just need to get through to Tokyo, just need to get through to Tokyo, and, like, that's, like, not a great motivator, but I guess it was good enough at the time, and this year, like, being able to take the time to, like, to see, like, do I like track? Like, yes, I do like track. Oh, like, here are all the things that my leg needed that I kept putting off, putting off, and now we're fixing them, and... I feel like I'm like, maybe I could go to 2024. Like, I think it's just been kind of a really weird but good reset. USOPC offers um, schooling. You can do online school. So I'm getting my master's degree right now, which is kind of cool. And it's In what? MBA. Awesome. It was wow. cool. It was, it was available. It was cool. I didn't really think about it. But, you know, I panicked. I was like, what am I going to do with all my time? And then it just turned out like I was just not organizing my time very well. And um, But a lot of that was just like constant... I think exhaustion fighting your prosthetic and so I don't know if I'm still competitive and I can I'm still able to make teams and it still is fun and like serving me then you know why not okay so not retiring no no not interesting not okay. this time not this go okay. around <laughs> all right so obviously the pandemic is affecting athletes of all stripes at this point but in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected by the pandemic like what kind of conversations with other disabled athletes like what have those conversations been like what are you hearing from your friends that are paralympians okay um sorry i just like heard a lawnmower go off and i'm like I don't think you can hear it. Okay. That's what my husband just mowed the lawn and I was like, you better finish at 1 PM. I was on a, so. yeah, I was on a call yesterday and I was like, I swear <laughs> I to God, my neighbor you. was trolling me. I'm like, come on. Okay. <laughs> you hear me on here. So at first I think I was like disabled athletes. Like we are adaptable. We are the masters at adapting. And uh, I mean, I think, wow, that's true. There's also so many risks that I feel like is going to be interesting on how it's covered and taken care of. My personal belief is that like, you know, a world post-COVID is going to still be very much affected by it. So having 10,000 athletes in one dining hall at one time is going to be creative, to say the least, regardless of ability or not. And for me, I'm lucky enough that I'm an ambulatory athlete where I just kind of like, all I need is a leg, you know, that's it. And um, for athletes, I think a lot about like the seated athletes, like a lot of like higher spine injury athletes, like the bocce athletes, any type of quad athlete that's going to need assistance transferring from their chair to their throwing chair, like, it's going to be interesting. And it will definitely be more heavily affected than the non-disabled athletes, for sure. Which isn't to say that non-disabled athletes, I think that there's, like, this mindset where people think that the disabled athletes, have, like, we run more risks, which I guess we do. But there's plenty of non-disabled athletes with extenuating circumstances that could be affected by COVID. Just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that you have, like, a steel immune system there's also like the fact that for track and field at least in the u.s a lot of our officials are just like the exact age demographic of the people most affected by this so hopefully and i have full faith that there is people much smarter than me <laughs> making plans for those circumstances because everybody has a right to play and you know these different categories of athletes should still be able to do their sport and i know that they're still training Hopefully the powers that be have plans put in place for that. One thing I've been thinking about COVID is we're hearing a lot about, obviously a lot of people have died, um, but a lot of people have gotten it and gotten better, but had disability on the other side of it. Yeah. These long haulers, like we're going to have a significant number of new disabled people specifically from this pandemic that we're living through right now. And I'm wondering 
what your message would be to those people that want to be athletic and how should people within sports be preparing for this? That's a great question, actually. Um, I would say, first of all, I guess to everybody, you learn quickly that no one disability is created equal. And um, I think we're learning now with COVID is that like no one person responds to a disease or a treatment equally as somebody else. And the cool thing about sports is that there are people, especially now with the Paralympic movement growing, there are people put in place that are equipped to present sport to you and make it accessible to you no matter what your circumstances, your physical circumstance. I should be honest because let me tell you, being disabled is one of the most expensive things I've done. <laughs> mm, yeah, of course. Um, I you know I didn't sign up for it, but it just you know that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So, without the risk of getting too political, hopefully after this too, we find way better ways to serve the disabled community because even before COVID, we were the largest minority in the world, and um, it's just going to keep growing for people recovering from COVID that are going to acquire like prolonged or permanent issues. Um, you just learn to make your disability a part of your routine and I think like the biggest misconception is that people with disabilities wake up like super duper inspired and jazzed to just like take on the world and just prove everybody wrong and you're like nah man I'm just trying to go to the grocery store today <laughs> like you know like the yeah. disabled we're just like you but the biggest thing I guess for disability especially in the U.S. is you have to learn to advocate for yourself because no one else is doing it right now. Hmm. So I know that disabled athletes access the sport. That's a huge topic. But are there two or three basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Like if Lacey was in charge of the world and you got to change, two or three things that would suddenly make sport more accessible for disabled yeah. athletes. Like what would that be for you? Honestly, I would do a lot more cohesive and unified sports. I was lucky enough to train in Phoenix with alongside Olympians. And it was like a utopia type experience for training. Like we had able-bodied, we had disabled athletes, we had everybody. And um, that proved to me that everybody can grow and everybody can get better regardless of the people you surround yourself with. And I think right now, like the U.S., we have gotten very comfortable with the NCAA system providing sport development for athletes becoming adults, which is great. Um, but not great for everybody because not everybody can be an NCAA athlete and, you know, score points for that team. And like, I think like our country could do a lot better job of just better sport development programs. We can do like more local sport development programs and make them unified, make them for everybody. Because like the crazy thing about disabled sport and non-disabled sport is that it's the same sport, like in track and field, like it's the <laughs> same event. It's the same distance. There's really... The equipment may look different, but at the end of the day, it is the same event. Badminton's the same way. I learned that last year. Don't know a lot about badminton, but like, holy smokes, what an incredible sport. But they train with <laughs> their able-bodied counterparts because it's the same sport. Mm -hmm. And I think people in the disability community, sometimes like we get wrapped up in it too, where things need to be separated or made specific for you, made specific for your disability, made specific for people with different disabilities, and sometimes you just need to jump in and play. And that was, I think, the biggest thing that I learned growing up, even though I call it like I was in disability denial. Like I just was like, I'm not disabled. Just I just have one leg. Um, <laughs> then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, but that was the best thing that served me was that you are just able to make you just you have that camaraderie you're able to make friends in the same sport you do. And I think that's important because in our communities and our like 
closest communities, typically if you are a person with a disability, you're the only person in your community with a disability. So to Hmm. try to do a sport consistently, you need to have groups that are going to help you achieve your sport regardless of who else participates in it. So can you tell us a little bit about, obviously what's next for you is training for Tokyo next year, but what else are you doing? Yeah, so right now I'm finishing my MBA. I just bought a house, which is exciting. We have a house. Whoa. So like I'm doing a lot of raking and like, you know, like trying Yeah, to... there's always something with a the house. There's always something to do. It's actually yeah, yeah. a little overwhelming. But other than that, I mean, yeah, Tokyo is the plan. We'd like to travel. My boyfriend's grandma lives in Italy, so we, and my family mm-hmm. in Italy, so we always like to go back and at least hang out, kind of feel like, you know, you can get away for a second, but That's where I want to go when this is over. I'm learning Italian. Right nice. <laughs> well, well, like it's real loose. It's like once a week. For hey, but minutes. you know, just the effort. They they appreciate the effort regardless. I just yeah. I speak Spanish, but I'll do it with like an Italian accent, and you know, it's amazing how far you can get. It's pretty and close. Yeah, yeah, up, yeah. You pick up some words, but um, yeah. I mean, I guess like besides training in school, we're still planning on doing season two of Pick Last in gym class for my podcast. I interview people, we basically talk about the stories of struggles before success, and it's about 50-50 disabled people, 50-50 non-disabled people, so I would love to just keep doing, working a little bit more on, like, the creative podcasting side. I've had a lot of fun, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think more than anything this year has taught me, it's been a reminder, and I was reminded the last Olympic year, too, that you're never just an athlete, you're never just a person with a disability. You're never just a mom. You're never just whatever. Like we can be so many things and there's space for all of it. And it's been, it's been a weird, but good year to be reminded of that. Thank you, Lacey Henderson for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you. You can follow Lacey Henderson on Instagram. Uh, My name is Lacey is your friend there. Uh, I have a Twitter. It's Lace is your friend. I ran out of characters for that one. <laughs> her website is LaceyJHenderson.com. Her podcast is called Pick Last in Gym Class. That's it for me, Jessica Luther. Burn It All Down will be back in your feed on Tuesday with episode 171. Until then, burn on, not out.